Today's message comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For considering your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolishness in the world to shame the wise. God choose, chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being most may, might boast in the presence of God. Please join me in a moment of prayer. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we walk through this text, Father, we do pray that you would grant us a spirit of humility before your word. Father, we pray that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to interpret our reason and our experiences in light of Scripture and not to interpret Scripture in light of our reason and our experience. We pray that you would enable us to uphold your word as supreme in our lives and that through it all, you would grant us a greater glimpse of your glory and of your mercy, and that you would grant us a more accurate perspective of ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the most difficult theological questions that Christians have struggled with over the last 2,000 years at least, is the question of why God created everything in the first place. Why would God create a world knowing full well that human beings would plummet into sin and that countless millions, billions, would perish eternally. The question has been so perplexing that it has led to several, the development of several false theologies over the last two millennia, beginning with uh, a man by the name of Pelagius, a pastor and theologian living in the 5th century on the British Isle, and uh, Pelagius argued that, uh, just uh, very quickly, I'll give you a brief explanation, Pelagius argued that all human beings are born with a completely free will. Um, our will is free to the extent that we can and should 
keep all of God's commandments. Pelagius argued that if God commands us to live a certain way, then certainly he believes we have the capacity to do so. Thus, salvation in the mind of Pelagius was a matter of simply doing what God commands and therefore, through obedience, earning our way into eternal life. It's all up to us. God simply tells us what to do, and it's up to us to do it. Thus, in the mind of Pelagius, the reason God created human beings and all of creation is that he wanted creatures, he wanted humans who had a free will and therefore could freely choose to worship him. And that's what he wanted, creatures who would choose to freely worship him. And this has been true throughout all of world history. That uh, was a view that was held by many, not all, but by many, up until about the 16th century, where what develops is what's known as uh, semi-Pelagianism, or sometimes referred to as Arminianism. It was developed by a 16th century pastor and theologian by the name of Jacob Arminius, who didn't fully agree with Pelagius, but said, no, you know, we've been affected by the fall. Sin does have an impact on us. We are sinful creatures. We do sin, and therefore sin is what separates us from God. And we are powerless in and of ourselves to um, surmount that obstacle known as sin, personal sin. And so he believed that what we need is prevenient grace, and that this prevenient grace comes from God. And that when we hear the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God bestows upon us prevenient grace, which enables us at that moment, when we are presented with the gospel, to have a free will and therefore the freedom to either choose for or against God. And all people have that freedom to choose for or against. Some will choose for, most will choose against. But at the end of the day, it is still our choice. God does most of what is necessary for salvation, but human beings must make the final choice if we are ever to have eternal life. In the end, Arminius agreed in large part with Pelagius that God created all things, knowing full well what would happen, but he wanted creatures to have a free will who would choose to worship him or not. The problem is that you're still left with the problem of if God is all-knowing and if God is all-loving, why create human beings knowing what would happen to the vast majority of them? That they would perish. What kind of a loving God, an all-knowing God, would do such a thing? <clears throat> so Pelagius and Arminius didn't really solve the problem. Hence, in the early 20th century, there is a theologian. I say theologian. He's actually had a PhD in mathematics and then decided to go into ministry and developed a theology that became tremendously popular known as process theology. He was a professor at Harvard Seminary. Process theology became very popular within American evangelicalism and essentially taught that God is in the process of learning. You see, God is much smarter than we are 
and uh, is almost all-knowing, but he doesn't really know the future because he's in the process of learning just as we are in the process of learning. And so he's a whole lot smarter than we are because he's been around a whole lot longer than we have been. But nonetheless, God has to learn through trial and error, just as most of us do. And that's what happened in the garden. God is in the process of learning. Then the latter part of the 20th century comes along a guy by the name of Clark Pinnock, professor of Christian interpretation at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario, who developed what he called open theism. And open theism argued that, no, God is all-powerful, God is all-loving, and God is all-knowing with regards to the present and the past, but God does not know the future. In other words, God was just as shocked by 9-11 as the rest of us. God did not know what Adam and Eve would do. Of course, none of these actually answer the question. All of these solutions actually create more problems than they solve. There are several significant problems with these theological theories that are false, by the way. One is they are simply not being faithful to the biblical text. They just aren't being honest with what the Scripture actually says. Secondly, if what they are saying is true, then God minimally is an irresponsible God. He is irresponsible for creating a world not knowing what might happen within that world. Who does that? Let's create a whole universe with people in it and see what happens. Adam and Eve were the first guinea pigs. And thirdly, if God does not know the future, or if God is in the process of learning just as we are, then God is not infinite. Because infinite, by definition, means without limits, without boundaries. And if God is not infinite, then God ceases to be God. He's no better than a bigger version of you and I which means that he is not and cannot be fully trustworthy. It means that he is arbitrary. It means that why should we put our faith in a God who does not know what will happen tomorrow? How can we be certain that he will bring us into eternity with him if he does not know the future or if he is figuring it out as he goes along? Believe it or not, my friends, there are a lot of evangelicals in the United States and around the world that hold to these views. For some crazy reason, they find them comforting to serve a God that doesn't know tomorrow. I don't find that comforting. I find that frightening. But in the end, the biggest problem with all of these views is that they begin with man and they end with God. In other words, they project human attributes onto God based on our understanding of human nature. If this is what people are like, then this must be what God is like. But instead, we need to begin with Scripture. And we need to end with a correct understanding of who God is and what He does and how He functions in the world. So I'm going to read to you several passages um, Three specifically, before I comment, just sort of uh, one right after the other. 
You can either follow along with me or just listen. I'm going to kind of go through them quickly. But I want to read to you three passages. You might want to just at least write them down if you're taking notes. These are important. Isaiah chapter 43 is the first one. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7, the word of God says this. This is God speaking. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Whom I created for my glory. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Scripture says this. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And the last one is Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Here the angels and the 24 elders in heaven are worshiping before the throne of the Lamb. And they sing, worthy are you, our Lord and God. Why? To receive glory and honor and power for, here's the reason, you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. God created all things for his glory. God did not create things And human beings, because he was lonely, because he was bored, because he wanted someone to worship him, God created things. Well, yes, someone to worship him, but he creates for his glory, that he might be glorified through his worship. But God did not create because he needed anything outside of himself. God did not create because he was lacking in anything. God created so that he might be exalted in the minds of his creation. Now, let me read to you three more passages, again, from Isaiah 46 this time. Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 11. God says this, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, that is declaring all of world history from beginning to end, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, I will do it. 
Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, Scripture says this. And at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 21. Here, Paul referencing God choosing Jacob over Esau in the Old Testament, not based on anything that they had done, but before they were even born, God chose Jacob and not Esau. And so Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part for doing that, for choosing one and not the other? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I choose to have compassion. So then, it does not depend, that is, salvation does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, Pharaoh, for the very purpose of drowning you in the Red Sea with your entire army. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God hold unbelievers responsible for their sin? Why does God send people to hell for their unbelief? Why does he still find faults? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to his molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter the right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. The potter has the absolute right. From these texts and many more, God is absolutely sovereign and no one has the right to question his motives or to question what God does. But we haven't answered our question yet, have we? We know why God created all things, but why did God create human beings knowing that they would fall into sin and that countless numbers of them would perish eternally? John chapter 17. You might want to turn to this one with me. This is a good one. John chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. Jesus 
praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's betrayed and arrested. Praise to the Father. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come, the hour of his betrayal and crucifixion. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Interesting wording. Not that he may give eternal life to all who believe. Not that he may give eternal life to all who repent. But that he may give eternal life to all whom you have given to the Son. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Thus, God the Father is most glorified, and God the Son is most glorified in the work of redemption, in the work of Christ dying on the cross in order to give eternal life to all those whom the Father had given to the Son from eternity past. And that cannot happen apart from sin entering the world. Without sin, there is no redemption. There's no such thing as redemption. That cannot happen apart from Adam and Eve reaching out and taking from the forbidden tree. Because, as Jesus says, eternal life, according to Christ in verse 3, is knowing God the Father and knowing God the Son. That's what it means to be saved. Eternal life is fully knowing God. Without sin and death, the cross, and redemption, God the Father and God the Son cannot be fully known. Because without sin in the world, without the cross, without redemption, there are certain attributes of God we would never know. We would never understand the wrath of God. We would never understand the justice of God. We would never understand the mercy of God or the grace of God or the love of God or the forgiveness of God had sin not entered the world. God the Father and God the Son are most glorified through the work of Christ's redemption because it is only through the work of redemption can we fully know our Creator. You say, so God did all of this. Sin, the cross of Christ, just so that he could receive glory to be worshipped by his creation? Yes. Well, that doesn't make any sense. To which I would reply 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, 
It is the power of God. To us who are being redeemed, it is glorious truth that compels us to worship God. It is only foolishness in the mind of the unbeliever. This is what Paul wants the church in Corinth to understand. He wants them to see and understand the glory of Christ and of what Christ has done for them because he knows, number one, this glorious truth is humbling. And the Corinthian church needed to be humbled. We all need to be humbled. It is humbling when we recognize that we did nothing to contribute to our salvation. It is simply God who saves And secondly, Paul understood that humility is what we need to grow in our sanctification. Without humility, you will never be willing to bow the knee to the word of God and submit to God's authority. Without humility, you will expect for God to live according to your rules rather than you live according to his rules. Without humility, you'll think that God's world revolves around you. And the reality is that our world should revolve around God. So Paul begins, or rather I should say, Paul continues to work on the pride of the Corinthian church because they were a prideful group. Remember, they were a church comprised of Romans and Greeks who believed that they were the creme de la creme when it comes to the world. And so he says in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Worldly standards in the Greek literally is according to the flesh. That's how the NASB translates it, according to the flesh. So this is, the ESV actually offers a sort of a translation, if you will. But it's a legitimate translation. Every commentator will say, what does that mean, according to Um, according to the flesh. Well, according to the world standards, according to the wisdom of the world. And Paul says, not many of you were there. Not many of you were powerful. That is influential, held powerful positions. Not many of you were of noble birth. Now, obviously, Paul doesn't say none of them were. He says not many. So there may have been a few who were powerful. There may have been a few of noble birth. There may have been a few who were educated, who were wise with regard to the wisdom of the world. But even those who weren't powerful or influential of of noble birth, the very fact, Paul understands, that this is a church comprised primarily of Greeks and Romans means that this is a church that is filled with pride. The American church has far more in common with the church in Corinth than we care to admit, I think. Paul wants them to think about where they were when God saved them. They were not smart. They were not powerful. They were not born into nobility. And yet, he says in verse 27, but despite the fact that you had nothing to offer God, you even had nothing to offer society, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. This is God's MO, right? This is the way God operates, his mode of operation. This is the paradox of God. The almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God delights in using the weak, the despised, and the rejected to do great things for his glory. Why? Because it displays the greatness of God. It communicates to the world, particularly those who are educated and powerful and from the, the nobility. It communicates to the world, God doesn't need you. God doesn't need anyone. God can use whomever he chooses or God can choose to use no one such as in creation, Genesis 1. God does all of that by himself. And the Bible is filled with these kinds of stories, right? Abraham was a nobody in Genesis chapter 11 when God called him. He's just one name at the end of a list of a whole bunch of names, and there's nothing that distinguishes him from anybody else. He has two other brothers. All three of them come from the same father. Why Abraham? Bible doesn't tell us. God just picked him. Picked him out of a hat because he chose to do so. And then there's Moses, right? What did Moses have to offer? He was a murderer, high-tempered, running from the law, hiding out in the wilderness, shepherding sheep, minding his own business, living his life. He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't looking to be a prophet. He wasn't looking to make a name for himself. He wanted to just live in peace for the rest of his life. And then God calls him out of the blue. He says, you're going to be my prophet. Really? Me? Or David, the most insignificant of Jesse's sons. So insignificant, his own father nearly forgets about him. Samuel goes through all the other sons. Nope, none of these are them. Is this all of them? No, oh, wait, 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 wait. That's right, there's one more. But it's just David. You don't want to talk to him. Yep, that's him. He'll be the greatest king of Israel. And that's who God's going to use. Then you've got the disciples, right? They were a ragtag bunch of misfits. Three of them fishermen. Have you ever known, like, career fishermen? They are a roughneck bunch. Jesus chooses them, then chooses a tax collector who are just slightly above catfish in the Jewish world. And then there's Paul, a bounty hunter for Christians, persecuting the church, was not looking for Christ at all, right? The complete opposite of a God seeker. He's looking to arrest people, Christians. God stops him and says, you're going to be my apostle. And then you look at church history. From the time of Christ, you think of men like 
John Newton, who was a slave trader, sang his song this morning. One of the greatest hymns of all time, Amazing Grace. Actually bought and sold slaves. God used them for great things. William Carey was a cobbler, a shoemaker. Grew up in poverty. Goes on to become one of the greatest missionaries of the world. In fact, is considered to be the father of foreign missions. Learned multiple languages on his own, self-taught, translated the Bible into numerous Asian languages. Charles Spurgeon only had a high school education. Considered the prince of preachers. C.S. Lewis was an atheist when God found him. Certainly not looking for God. And yet goes on to become one of the greatest defenders of the faith of any Christian in modern time. One of my personal favorites is Chuck Colson. Probably because I like history and political history. Chuck Colson goes on to establish prison ministries. If you're familiar with the whole Watergate scandal, when that whole thing broke up, Chuck Colson was at the very center of it. In fact, Chuck Colson was considered to be the Richard Nixon's hatchet man. He once famously said, I would walk over my dead mother's grave for Richard Nixon. Got saved in prison. Made a difference for the world, for Christ. God chose all of these individuals. He chooses the foolish to shame the wise. He chooses what is weak to shame the strong. He chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Now, the end of verse 28 is a little confusing. It doesn't help that the word in the Greek behind the four words, to bring to nothing, is actually one word. It's a katargeo, and it's used 27 times in the New Testament, but it's translated 17 different ways. In fact, in 1 Corinthians alone, Paul uses it six times, and in all six instances, it never carries exactly the same meaning. It's always slightly different. But when you take all of these together and you compile them, there does seem to be one overarching meaning for this word that Paul is using, and it is to make insignificant. In other words, God uses those who seem insignificant to the world, those who seem to be nothing, those who seem to be nobodies, to make insignificant those who seem significant. He takes those who are insignificant in the eyes of the world to make insignificant those who seem or who think they are significant. But here's the point that cannot be missed. Three times in this passage, Paul says, God chose, God chose, God chose. What Paul wants the church in Corinth to understand is as wonderful and smart and capable as the church in Corinth thought they were, God chose them. They did not choose God. The idea that God chooses those whom he saves is found everywhere in the Bible. I just gave you several examples from the Old Testament. 
of people that were not looking for God. God simply chooses them. It's found everywhere in the Bible. There are so many places I could turn to. But let's look at one, Ephesians chapter 2, and I hope you'll turn to this one with me. Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, Scripture says, And you, he's talking to believers, and you were, so he's talking about their past tense, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Don't miss the language that Paul uses. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul doesn't mince words. Paul is a theologian of the highest level. He chooses his words carefully. And he says, before we were saved, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That was our spiritual condition. And if you've ever been around a dead person or a dead body, maybe in the medical world or in a funeral home, you know that dead people are completely unhelpful to themselves. They do nothing. It doesn't matter how much you say to them, look, just get up off that table. Come on, you can do it. Give them some paddles from a defibrillator and put them on their chest and said, all right, I'll push the button, but you hold them. We'll make this a joint effort. They're not going to help because they're dead. We were as spiritually dead as Lazarus was dead in the tomb, according to Scripture. Dead to the things of God. Dead to God. Dead to Christ. Dead to the gospel. He says it again in verses 4 and 5 of our text. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were dead, he says, to make sure we didn't miss it the first time. But then he goes on. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Notice that Paul, when describing our salvation and how salvation works, uses resurrection language. He raised us to life. Just as Lazarus was dead in the tomb and could do nothing and could contribute nothing to being brought back to life, Jesus simply said, Lazarus, come forth. He came alive. That is how salvation works according to the word of God. We were dead, and at some moment in time, God spoke to our dead souls and said, come alive and come forth. But God does not do this with everyone, right? Otherwise, everyone would be saved. God chooses whom he will raise to life and whom he will not. Just as Jesus did not raise every dead person to life, he certainly could have. Jesus did not heal every sick person and every invalid and completely make Israel free of disease, he certainly could have. But he does not. 
To this, many will ask, well, then why does not God save everyone? But that's the wrong question to ask, I think. The real question is, why does God bother to save anyone? Because no one forces us to sin. In our unbelieving state, we spent our lives shaking our fist at God and saying, I don't care about you. Stay out of my life. And yet God, for some amazing reason, looked upon us, those of us who are saved, and said, I know that you hate me now, but someday you'll love me for this very reason. Come forth. And he made us alive. He gave us life. And we are forever indebted to what Christ has done for us. In the end, we are all sinners. And none are deserving of God's salvation. But he chooses to save some. And the question is why? 1 Corinthians 1.29. Here's why. so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that no one, when they enter into eternal life, can pat themselves on the back and say, I did something to get here. No one will be able to rob God of any of his glory. Because when we get there, we will all realize, every Christian will realize at that moment, we are here simply and solely because of what God has done for me. It was all because of his sovereign grace and his mercy that he bestowed upon us. Everything that God does, listen, beloved, everything that God does is not primarily for you. Everything that God does is primarily for his glory. It is for his glory. And if you don't particularly care for that truth, and if that offends you, just understand this, that God is God and you are not. We live in his world. And God does what he wants and when he wants. And he owes none of us an explanation. If you're a believer, know this. God chose you. You did not choose God. And he chose you simply because he is rich in mercy and grace and love, and he desires for you to worship and to glorify him forever. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we stand amazed by your grace. Why you would choose to save anyone is a mystery. But Father, I I for one am so incredibly thankful that you did. I don't care why 
you have chosen some unto eternal life. I only care that you have. And Father, we pray that this truth would drive us to greater and deeper worship and devotion and devotedness to you and to your glory. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we go to the Lord's Supper.